Hello everyone out there and welcome to another edition of When Movies Were Good, hosted by Rachel and her special guest star slash close friend, Matthew. And we're able to do this in person now, Matt, here in the many months of lockdown in Melbourne. So Yeah, it doesn't really feel real, does it? <laughs> it doesn't, but it's good. And I think the audience will probably appreciate the sound quality a lot better. Yes, uh, we're trying to get a sponsorship deal with Rode Microphone, <laughs> so we're going to um, put in a, a nice word every now and then and see if they can sweeten the deal. <laughs> well, it's it's much better to be recording in person and we're, we're grateful for it. So welcome everyone to When Movies Were Good for our Sean Connery slash RIP special that we're doing tonight. Matt, this was, um, you, you were a fan of Sean's, weren't you? Because you're a Bond fan. I was, so uh, I haven't seen all of his movies. Uh, he made quite a lot of cult uh, classics in the 70s and 80s, which uh, some of them can be hard to get hold of, but I'm a big fan of a lot of his works, the Bond films, and also later ones like Hunt for Red October. Mm -hmm. He was this really great stage presence, and although uh, he was, especially in his latter career, he was uh, almost more in the in this type of character where... He wasn't so much uh, appreciated for the characters he played, but being such a great character himself, and you just wanted to see him almost in basically a variety of different costumes. Yes. I was... just uh, couldn't never get enough of his work. So he was... So Sean Connery, just a little bit of information before we go into the two films that we've chosen of Sean's. He, of course, was very famously Scottish, and he was born in Edinburgh, or a part of Edinburgh in the United Kingdom, on August the 25th, 1930. And then just obviously recently passed away on Halloween of this year, October 31st, 2020, in Nassau, the Bahamas. Apparently he had been uh, going through quite a lot of health challenges, being the age that he was firstly. And also it was rumoured that he'd had dementia. And that last photo I, I saw of him, I can sort of see he looked a bit vacant in the eyes. So his wife confirmed that. So I'm sure she wouldn't say that unless it was unless it was true. So it was a bit sad to hear. But yeah, unfortunately, none of us are immortal. Yeah, well, that's that's right. So um, Sean is known for his classic dark good looks, also for his physical presence. He was a tall, strapping man. And hence the reason he made such a great bond and such a great sort of action pop culture hero. Uh, he was actually Thomas Sean Connery, but his brother confirmed that he'd always been called Sean. So that wasn't just a choice of a stage name. That was just the family name that he was always known by. And uh, he had a very sort of uh, interesting start to a career and had tried sort of an athlete's life, being a bodybuilder for a period of time and working a lot of odd jobs, including being a coffin polisher like po polishing up coffins for people i guess so and even before <laughs> that he uh, began first of all in the navy yes that's right yes he did and he um and he ended up i think having to leave the navy because he had a health condition and then he was like well the heck with it i'm gonna go become an actor yeah well it was probably not quite as a sudden yeah. transition <laughs> but yeah he uh, Although it's hard to believe because he became known for his uh, physical prowess, but he was actually taken off the Navy uh, for disability reasons because he developed an ulcer. Yes. And we're talking in the, I think it was in the late 40s, uh, early 50s. At that time, ulcers were attributed to stress. And yeah. we know it's a bit more complicated now. It's to do with bacteria in the stomach and everything. Mm -hmm. But it was unfortunate for Connery to his pride in that they said the medical doctor in the ship 
literally you don't have the stomach for this job, so you're, <laughs> you're I think, out. So he was um, put on a naval pension for a brief period uh, because he'd only been in the service for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and he moved on to other things. And it's probably just as well because even though it's uh, a, perf- a perfectly honourable career. That was still a time when, uh, unless you were a very eloquent, uh, received pronunciation speaker, you had a limited chance of getting ahead in the naval forces in the UK. Yeah, and then I think he went into playing football after that as well, and he was trying to be scouted by Manchester United. And even though he was offered a contract... He decided that being a top-class footballer was still a limited option and, like, he might be out of a job again, you know, just as soon as he started type thing as he was about 23 at the time. And then, yeah, he decided to give acting away. Yeah, well, soccer, professional soccer at that time wasn't like it is now. You... Um, was, it was only money. just then that it was coming to be mm. that you started making money as an athlete and that wouldn't necessarily be a fortune. And even assuming he didn't get injured in the meantime, yes, he'd be still be out of the job by 30 or so, whereas acting you can uh, do a bit longer. Mind you, it was a risk even then because uh, uh, a lot of uh, actors were sort of um, diminished in what they could do by their 30s as well. Yeah, that's true. So one of his first roles he got was in the production of South Pacific, and he was a chorus boy in that. And then by the time I think the, the production had, had originated in the West End, then it became a travelling production around the UK. He actually had moved up and was understudying one of the two juvenile leads, so he had a raise in salary. And then when the production returned the following year out of popular demand, here we go, Matt, get ready for it. Yep. He was promoted to the feature role of Buzz Adams, which was a role that Larry Hagman had played in the West End, but I think he only got that job because of his mum, Mary Martin, but that's fine. The show really should be called Ways to Connect <laughs> Larry Hagman to Everything in Every Show I, in the World. I thought I had to do it. I had to get it in early, so now we've done that. But yes, I'm proud was, of you. Thanks. I, th- I saw that. I saw that in his bio, one of the bios I was reading about him. I said, yes, it has to be done. And then he went on and got more roles and, and obviously made the films that we're going to discuss tonight. These were two of his first films that he ever did. Yes, they are. It's hard. To, uh, many people think he came out of nowhere with the Bond films, but no, he uh, had a bit of a career beforehand. Yeah, and then these sort of sort of stepping stones and then led him into the Bond films, which we can come back to a little bit later. But we'll get into discussing the, the films that we've chosen uh, just briefly tonight before we get into discussing them. So we've got Another Time, Another Place, 1958, and Darby O'Gill and the Little People, 1959, which is a Walt Disney um, film that Sean did. Another Time and Another Place is the story... So he co-starred with Lana Turner in this film, and she played a US news correspondent, and she has a wartime affair with a British news correspondent in, in the UK, played by Sean Connery. And then after he passes away, very tragically, she seeks out his widow and their child and in a bid to sort of get to know them. And then it all kind of comes out at the end. So this first film that he did, I mean, to work with Lana Turner in itself would have been uh, an honour, but it also would have lifted his status up too. So this one was directed by Lewis Allen. The story was by Lenore Coffey based on her novel Weep No More. And the screenplay was by Lenore Coffey and Stanley Mann. Uh, cinematography by Jack Hildyard. Also starring Bar- Barry Sullivan, 
John Messier. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name, but we know him from Dad's Army. I saw the face and yep. I thought, oh my God, that's, that's, is that Wilson from Dad's Army? And then the great Sid James, who I love from the Carry On films and Bless This House and a few other shows I used to watch him in. Um, so what were your thoughts on this film? This is a very sort of like melodramatic, romantic. Yes. Look, I'm going to say it now. I don't think it's a masterpiece. It has two major actors. It has Lana Turner, who was the, the one of the Hollywood bombshells, the blonde beauty of the 40s. And it's a fascinating uh, piece of history because of it being one of um, Sean Connery's launch pads. In many ways, I think it uh, would not have the staying power it does, uh, just because of the the plot, I just don't think, really is, is strong enough. Yeah, it could have been... I get what they were going for, but I don't think there was enough elements in the plot. Um, like, yeah, I, I, I thought it would have actually been better to keep the Sean Connery character alive and she heads to the village and causes trouble there or something with him and the wife trying to lead this sort of life and you have that juxtaposition of this wild affair that they had when they were war correspondents and then perhaps after the war ends she goes to the town and seeks him out because she could never get over him i don't know i probably yeah. would have preferred to see that but i mean it was innovative in some ways for the time because it focuses really on uh, the tensions of two female characters and uh, building their stories together and it, quite often it would have actually been the opposite where Connery's uh, part would have often, where it's effectively a decorative plot device mm -hmm. uh, would have uh, suffered some of the consequences for a female character in a lot of different pictures I don't know it's, it just seems to just miss a certain something to make it really timeless yeah, I mean, I like the people in it, and I think I've read a few reviews of the film where they said there were really good people in the film, but it was lacking some elements. I think there was just, they were already going out together when we met up with them in the plot, so we didn't have that, you know, build up of, oh, will they have an affair, or will they do this, or will they do that? So they were already together, and then, you know, I get the tragedy of his character dying, but they just didn't... You know, she goes there, she speaks to the wife, they have a confrontation. It just, yeah, I agree with you. There, there could have been a few other elements in the plot. I did think it was a particularly nice-looking film, and I thought mm. Sean was serviceable in the character. They didn't uh, demand a great deal from him, and being one of his first larger roles, perhaps that was a good thing. And Lana Turner was is Lana Turner. I mean, she's just a beautiful actress. And... Exactly. And I think she was reaching a bit of the uh, apex of her career at that time. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a bit of an interesting backstory behind the scenes with that film because of at that time, Lana Turner was married to or about to get out of the marriage to or beginning to. I th she was always in and out of one marriage. Yes. But she was with this... Uh, semi-criminal character called Johnny Stompanato who had mob connections and the like and he was very jealous because he believed that Turner and Connery were having an affair and tried to threaten him but Connery he would have none of that and he like <laughs> made haggis of him and uh, he but he did have to keep a low profile because apparently he 
uh, actually did have to worry about gangland connections coming after him. And then tragically, her daughter killed this guy. Lana Turner's daughter killed killed this guy in um, yeah. self-defense after a domestic dispute. Even that was um, controversial for a while because there was some thoughts that Turner herself may have done it and they arranged it because of... Um, I think because uh, her daughter was underage at the time, she would have escaped death penalty. Or... Yeah, I hadn't actually, until I sort of started, you know, because you sort of know Lana Turner, but it's until you start sort of reading a bit more about her life. So I wasn't actually aware that she'd had this whole backstory with her daughter and her being responsible for this guy's death. And that actually, I'm surprised they haven't done like 10 films about that. Like, Well, uh, tragedy if it's true, but actually... Uh... Another one of uh, Turner's husbands, who was one of the original uh, Tarzans, uh, Wiesmuller, mm-hmm. allegedly uh, he raped her daughter when she was just a child. Oh my god, I know, it's one of these sort of, um, it sounds like something out of, what's it, Joan Crawford? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, we'd probably hear a lot more out of it if it happened a bit more recently and there were more eyewitnesses to call upon, but unfortunately it's, uh, especially when you only have a... Uh, devote Seth looking into it, it's probably hard to ever know for certain. Yeah, that was the tragic situation. So, but w- what do we know? Were they actually having... They looked very... From the pictures I've seen of Sean and Lana on the set, they looked quite cosy. So were they actually... Do we ever find out if they were having an affair or that was just what the Johnny thought? Oh, I uh, couldn't say for certain. Uh, he was a bad piece of work, that... V- uh, that um. Stompanato, um, in any case. Yeah. Uh, what a name, Stompanato. <laughs> uh, he look, certainly wanted to stomp on a lot of people, wasn't Look, uh, a rose by any other name <laughs> could uh, still... Well, I, I should have worked on that metaphor ahead of time. <laughs> oh, my God, that's great. No, it's... um. Yeah, no, it was certainly an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. So, but uh, yeah, look all up. Um, it was good to see the film, and I haven't seen a lot of Lana's films, so I thought, yeah, I thought it was all right. Uh, and I mean, Sean always looked like some sort of Roman god, anyway. So even though he was wasn't, you know, he was what in his twenties in this film. Yeah, he always looked a bit older than what he actually was. He always did, yeah. yeah, he had that mature look about him, and that happens. I mean, uh, it was embarrassing for me when I was turning about 24 or something and somebody thought I was turning 30. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's not that he looks old, but he just looks always looks more mature than, than what he kind of, his actual age, and especially as he got older with the receding hairline and the beard and everything. Well, he was from that generation where if you were... At a, at a certain class of life, you had to become a man very early because from childhood you'd uh, be spending a lot of time working to help bring in money for the family. Yeah. And uh, he had his early naval career. And uh, growing up in the 1930s Edinburgh, I think it was a, quite a tough culture because yeah. even when he... Uh, there was this uh, time because although he uh, gave all his money from odd jobs when he was a teenager to his mother, she had actually been secretly saving part of it uh, to give as a present to him after a while. And with this money, he first wanted to buy a motorcycle and his parents wouldn't have any of that yeah. uh, because they were worried he was going to join local gangs. Yeah. So he got a piano instead. Oh, so was he a good pianist or...? I don't, I don't know if... Um, 
how much he uh, uh, got into it because uh, I mean he'd have had to have had some commitment because he had this tiny tenement uh, that they had to bring the piano up into. I don't know know of him playing much piano afterwards. Mm. It was just something to spend the money on type thing. Probably. I mean, he obviously had a, an interest in uh, doing some more cultural things. Well, that's so, interesting. I hadn't actually... I hadn't come across that story. It, like, if all... If I could uh, have talked to him, that's probably the one question I'd have thought of asking him. Yeah. No, was, I'm sure there's probably a lot about him that we never really got to know because he did sort of seem like he... In some ways, he did keep to himself and he... He was sort of stably married. I mean, he did have his first wife where he had his son, Jason, but then he got married to the second wife in 1975 and they were together right until the end. Yeah. So. Well, he was one of those rare things in an actor where he was very comfortable with his own company. Yeah, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. And he came from fairly solid working class roots and he seemed to be uh, quite comfortable in his own skin. He And uh, by the end of it, he... Partly why I think he didn't do as much work afterwards, not only because he didn't get along with get along with a lot of later directors, and uh, he, I don't think he liked the how Hollywood uh, became a bit more complex and time consuming afterwards with special effects and extra technology and everything. But I think by the end he just cared about more about his golf score. Yeah, I think I did read a comment where he said he was having too much fun being retired or something like something. I think in t- two thousand and seven or something they wanted him to come back for a sequel for a film or something, and he was like, mm. and "Yeah." If you, and if you're happy with that, um, that's yeah, fine. Sometimes, I- yeah. And the trouble when you're you've got all that build up and been away for a long time, it's that people would expect so much, and you know you just can't live up to that. Yeah, that's true. And I guess you know maybe he for him he walked away at the right time. So if we go into his second film that we watched, we actually watched this one together, which was kind of fun. We yeah, got I know. a little it's... bit of Uber Eats and hung out, and the Matt's dogs were there and jumping around, and we had a lot of fun with they, them. They were very excited. Yeah, no, it was. <laughs> I think Matt lives with three Havanese dogs and his own, he and his fiance's dog, Odie, who's a gorgeous little Dutch hunt. So they were having fun, but they eventually calmed down. Yeah. Yeah, eventually. So we watched a gorgeous little film called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. So that was one was made in 1959, so not long after the first film. And it was set, um, it's a fantasy adventure film that was produced by the Walt Disney Production Company. Um, and it was adapted from the Darby O'Gill stories by Hermione Templeton Kavanagh. I'm not too familiar with the Darby O'Gill stories, are you? Or No, I do have a book uh, that's like a compendium of Celtic uh, legends. Haven't got around to reading it though, but there'll probably be some interesting storylines like we saw. Yeah, definitely. And it was directed by Robert Stevenson and written by Lawrence Edward Watkin. And the film starred um, Albert Sharp, who was quite a well-known Irish actor, who... Um, uh, he was quite famous from the stage and film over in that area of the world. He originally was from Belfast. Uh, Janet Munro, Jimmy O'Day, who played the Leprechaun King, Brian, wasn't it? <laughs> and of course, Sean Connery. So this was a more of a supporting role, but that's fine. The movie yeah. was heaps of fun. So the basic plot for this film is Albert Sharp's character, Darby O'Gill, and he gets made sort of redundant from his job and he doesn't want to tell his daughter Katie that he's been fired from this position and Sean Connery's character has taken that position from him. So then on his way home, Darby goes through like a little opening into this portal thing to the land of the little people, which is when it starts getting fun because there's all these massive dance routines and 
and he comes into contact with the Leprechaun King, King Brian, played by Jimmy O'Day. And then he ends up bringing King Brian back with him into his into the normal world. And then he demands that Brian give him three wishes. And then it's interesting how those three wishes sort of work out. Yeah. You enjoyed it. I saw your face. You you thought this film was fun. Yeah, all, all that complicated magic of three parts of the Caribbean film can turn into <laughs> one. I, no need for sequels. Just get to all the magic straight away. Yeah. And, I mean, that ending at the end, I mean, spoiler alert, by the fact that he's uh, saved um, from uh, sort of... Uh, the Irish Grim Grim Reaper, yeah. who, by the way, rides a stylish carriage. <laughs> yeah, uh, that didn't look like too bad of a ride. Yeah, and the, that he just accidentally made too many wishes and they got him <laughs> free. I thought, but I actually thought, so, you know, the film is sort of a bit of a fable as well, be careful what you wish for type thing, and yeah. because every time he had those three wishes, but the few times he tried to use these group of three wishes, he'd go overboard and have an extra wish and that would cancel everything out. Except in the last case, it worked out for the best sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I studied archaeology, so I appreciate a lot of those crazy ancient fables. (laughs) But um, those fables are really good. And they're actually great, great films for little kids to watch, actually. And even though it was a little bit hokey, it was a lot of fun. And I thought the special effects for the time were quite good. Like when the Leprechaun King is sort of interacting with other people... And they're sort of, obviously, it's sort of like they've joined the film together or however they've done it. I'm not sure. I haven't, didn't research too much about how they did this. I mm. thought it was all right. Like, I thought it looked pretty good. I think the special effects uh, were very clever. Like you said, especially with the use of perspective. Sorry, I keep stumbling on that one. Uh, perspective of the leprechauns. Mm. Where it was a bit less convincing was at the end where you had a... a the banshee, which is like some sort of um, spirit of death, yeah, and you have it's almost like they have this fluorescent drawing, yeah. Onto the, <laughs> and at that time, I don't think it was that so much that we we're trying to be convi- convincing; it's that we're trying to really trigger fright. Yes. And at that time, it probably would have scared a lot of people. But it's interesting how different special effects age better than others. Mm. Like the original King Kong from the thirties. Although it, it oh, is obviously right. a model, uh, you sort of forgive it, and I, you actually find yourself still, still supporting the gorilla as he gets into the fight with the dinosaur. Yeah, did he fight? I haven't seen the. I've I've only seen the nineteen seventies version, and then one of the new versions of King Kong, which I didn't particularly like. It was far too long. But um, so I, I actually need to sit down and watch that nineteen thirties King Kong. So it actually does fight a dinosaur in it. Yes, well, I think we have another episode that yeah. we could uh, plan ahead with that one. <laughs> Maybe we can do that one with Godzilla or something like that. That would be, yeah. That let's, would... <laughs> uh, let's see what we can find. Um, so, um, yeah, or, you know, I mean, I always keep going back to the special effects from Razor Titanic. I still think that scene was pretty good, considering it was a model. Well, that was the scene that only made... the. the... That was all that made the film worth watching at yeah. all, really. Which was, I mean, I haven't read... I've had a friend that he reads very... You know, he reads a lot. And he read Raise the Titanic. And he so have said, I. Yeah, yeah. But did you think the book was actually a good book? I did. The plot, it was in kind of that Hunt for Red October type genre. And it was uh, very enthralling. And for the... The important thing, and we're kind of going, this would have been great for the Titanic episode uh, when we did it, but actually for the, what was known about the wreck at the time, some of the scientific conjecture about what condition the wreck would be in and whether it could be raised was actually pretty clever. 
Yeah, I mean, I still, yeah, so in relation to this film, it's, I guess it depends on how much you enjoy the film, how quaint it is, how it fits in with the way the rest of the film was shot, and what you're willing to tolerate in the film. And I, yeah, yeah I mean, I enjoyed it. I loved all the little dance sequences with all yeah. the little people. It's, and, it's a Disney film, and yeah. Disney then and now loves to create stereotypical fantasy images. Yes. I mean, uh, even though they try to uh, follow political correctness now, I, I remember I was almost considering auditioning for a character at one of their theme parks once when I was young, and mm -hmm. the description for um, was that you had to meet the criteria of Disney's registered characteristics for given nation, which was a very complicated way of saying, if you fit the Australian stereotype, you're fine. Uh <laughs> Which I do not. Um, I I thought the two male leads in this film were outstanding. So it's a bit fair. It's a bit unfair to kind of grade Sean in this film because he really was just the kind of the third male lead and just the good looking, mm. the requisite good looking guy. Because really, Albert Sharp and Jimmy O'Day were absolutely fantastic in this film, and they were so entertaining. So it's a bit unfair to try to put Sean into their category because that's not what his character was about. He was more the romantic lead. Yeah, let's be frank. In the, both of the films we're reviewing, we're reviewing you're not going to really see destiny and the waiting behind the scene. Yes. Uh, Sean Connery for the first time, although he did a, a good job in both these films, for the first uh, few years of his career, most comments were generally, yes, he can't really act, but the producer's wife thinks he's really good looking. Yes, yeah, I, I think I read that as well. And you know what? There's plenty of people who got their start, and yeah. I think Lana Turner was a victim of that as well. Although she did do The Postman Rings twice, I would like to see that film. Me too. And she got very good critical reviews from that. I actually wonder if Connery would have um, uh, got as lucky as he did if he lived um, maybe 10 years later, because it was only just at that time when it became a thing for a lot of male stars to be uh, getting in on looks with bodybuilding to begin with. Uh, Long before Arnie was trying to... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Sean Connery bridged kind of an awkward gap, uh, particularly in the English cinema, because he was too young to be uh, part of the matinee idol Laurence Olivier type generation. Rain land. Yeah, exactly, that very <laughs> charming type. And even then, he was a, a Sean Connery kind of oozed the coffin polisher in him yeah. uh, on uh, the, the way he moved about on the screen. Mm. And But he was also kind of too old to be part of that beatnik 60s yes. pop culture generation. Yeah, yeah. He was um sort of uh, actually one of my other faves, Anthony Perkins, he was sort of in that category with him. They were sort of, they were both born, well, Anthony Perkins was born in 32 and Sean was born in 30. So, yeah, he was, they were, there was a whole group of actors like Sean who were sort of bridging a couple of different sort of the matinee idol era and then like you said, they're sort of like hipster sort of era of the 60s and going into the 70s yeah. so it was kind of an odd era to be an actor for going into your 20s and 30s and transitioning from um i did think in the first film they did do a good job with the production design and stuff because that film still technically was a period piece of sorts because it was set 10 years before 10 or so or mm. 12 or 13 years before when they actually shot it so i still think it, it definitely had a a good ambience about it. And I think both films, you know, they just had a particular market they were going for and, and I thought they did it 
fairly well. I mean, I probably preferred Darby O'Gill to the first film. Yeah, that was a much more enthralling film, and I think it's probably aged a little bit better, uh, even even uh, despite the, some of the cultural stereotypes uh, of Ireland. Like, there's no attempt to link it with the modern world at all. Yeah. And But you could say that it probably about most Disney films. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and you sort of have to take the films. You know, one's a bit of a romantic melodrama, and the other one's... Uh, the other one's just a fun, more childlike Disney film, and they both do what they need to do. So it was good to sort of, and obviously because Matt and I are working between a period of time, we're working up to 1959, so these films were in that time frame, so that's why they were chosen. So, um, you know, but I do intend on watching a few Bond films with Matt at some point. Oh, I look forward to that. Although I wouldn't mind seeing a bit more Roger Moore. Prob- I, think, I think I'm a bit more Pierce Brosnan, though. Because the, the set of Bond films that I've seen are all the Pierce Brosnan Bond films. I think because they had a bit more of a commercial pop culture thing about them. Well, mind you, uh, the Bond films from the beginning had a commercial bend. Uh, the, like the Fleming novels were little more than a, a gun for the battle, but the gadgets kept building up very early in the films, largely because they would always release a lot of toys afterwards. Yeah, well, that's true. I guess it's... It, so that was the precursor to the Star Wars era with all the tie-in toys and... Pretty much. I mean, uh, Disney earlier with um, Mickey Mouse and stuff had introduced yeah, uh, the dolls and the like, but mm. this was when the toys were really coming out, like they had the Bond uh, track car racing, that sort of thing. Well, I thought these. Well, it's good to pay a bit of tribute to Sean. Is there anything about Sean that you want to say before we sign off and just introduce our next two films? Well, just that I hope uh, generations will continue to value his work. He was both um, that brilliant elder statesman of acting in some of those prime roles. Uh, he was also a, a, a beacon, I think, for a, a very self-content person who, although he uh, didn't uh, always appreciate this uh, the f- huge fame he got, and sometimes I think he was a little uh, uh, misguided in th- in how he was uh, complaining about this uh, one fact or another. He always complained about how long production would mm. would take, uh, like not getting home till seven and, and the like. So he, in one way, he loved acting, but he also kind of had the healthy respect for his own personal time, like you'd expect of a tradesman. Yeah, he really did approach acting with the same mentality back when he was doing building and those sorts of jobs. Yeah, well, that's probably because of his background. So, yeah, um, yeah, it was it was a sad to lose him, but he had a good long life, and hopefully, he's in a better place now. So, with a golf course, uh, yeah, as, that's Daniel, right. as Daniel Craig said. <laughs> yes, and he was very much loved, and and I think he will sort of remain in people's memories and definitely remain a part of pop culture, definitely for the foreseeable future. So just quickly, everybody, we have, we've decided in light of recent events, not that we want to talk too much about all that sort of stuff, but we've decided to do a Ronald Reagan double next week. We did want to do Bedtime for Bonzo, the famous film we did with the monkey, but um, unfortunately we can't seem to find it anywhere that's easy for us to access it. So we've chosen... We, we try to keep it legal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I would like to see that film because it just looks hilarious. So, and I love anything to do with you know animals working with actors and stuff. Even though I'm sure it's a real pain behind the scenes to do it. Uh, so, we've decided to um, we've chosen a few films that fit into our time frame. 
also that seem interesting and also that we've got access to. So we've chosen um, Santa Fe Trail, which is 1940, with uh, one of our compatriots, Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland and Ronald Reagan. So he plays one of the one of the other male leads. I didn't think this is Errol's film, but that's fine because he's he's in it mostly too. And then we've just we found another little film which I think we're going to enjoy called Louisa. Um, starring Ronald Reagan and Spring Byington. I didn't write her name down, but I think that was her name, playing his mother, and a young Piper Laurie. So I'll be interested to see that. So Santa Fe Trials, 1940, and Louisa's 1950. So that's our Ronald Reagan double for next week. And Matt will just tell you a little bit about our social media, and then we'll bid you adieu for the night. Yes, well, if you don't mind, Mark Zuckerberg, watching your viewing <laughs> habits... You can brave the webs of Facebook and look at our page there. Okay. You can also look at us on Instagram and Twitter. And we will publicize all content to you. Oh, fantastic. And now that I've actually got my computer back after the whole year of it not working, um, maybe I can get on and do some of the stuff I'd like to do. So that's a, that's a bonus too. But in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and good night.